0: You know, I looked at that and said, "You know, if this is it, if this is it, I'm cool with that. You know, I'm going to do what I can to to fight it, just to provide hopefully information for other people because I've done it all, man."
1: Ladies and gents, welcome back to Dharma Talk, episode number fifteen. Thank you for listening to this show. Whether you're new or longtime listener, well long time could only really be 15 episodes, but nevertheless, I appreciate you. And on this week's show, I am excited to introduce you to a new friend, a teacher named David Dannon. I stumbled into David's class when I was out in California for about a month, and I didn't know anything about him at the time, but it did not take long for me to realize that there was something special going on in his class. At first, he comes across as sort of a straight shooter, uh, no BS, but call you on your BS sort of guy. But then at the end of class, he put us into a shavasana, whipped out an acoustic guitar, and started to serenade us. And then he slipped into sort of a an elegant soliloquy about the importance of holding gratitude for your health. Because if you don't have your health, That's the only thing that you miss. I learned later that that message was very personal to David because after practicing for nearly 40 years, teaching for nearly 20, he was diagnosed with cancer. And since then, he has dedicated an entire blog and a new book on the topic of life, yoga, and cancer So we do talk about that but we also talk about a number of other things we talk about what yoga dharma and improvisational jazz have in common and why children have a unique advantage to progress in almost anything we talk about why he believes creativity is overrated when it comes to sequencing your class as a teacher and the value of consistent repetition in both teaching and your personal practice We talk about dealing with hypersensitive students in class and what David really focuses on to get students to either fall in love or stay in love with yoga. And of course, we talk about how he's used the tools he's learned in yoga over decades to respond to his cancer diagnosis and how anyone can face a worthy opponent in the battlefield of life with grace. I do want to apologize in advance because we did run into some technical difficulties and the audio quality isn't quite up to my standards toward the last 10 minutes or so of the interview. But I promise you, it's worth it. Practice your yogic patience with me and uh, stick with it. There's a lot of gold in this interview. You'll get right into that after these announcements yogis i've got a whole lineup of special events coming your way this summer that i'm excited to share with you and i'm going to rattle them off in order of most serious to most lighthearted and fun okay first of all i'm assisting jared mccann in his 300 hour quote-unquote advanced teacher training at lighthouse yoga school in williamsburg brooklyn this july Now, it's advanced in the sense that we will be working on sequences that include advanced asanas. But really, the more advanced part about it is the intensity of the spiritual practice or sadhana. Every single day is going to start with seated meditation in a group. And you'll take away a practice that you can carry forward for the rest of your life. Uh, I did this training myself last year. And this year, I'm helping out with it. It's going to be a lot of fun. Next, if you're not really interested in becoming a yoga teacher, you can still do the teacher training, but we also have another option for you, which is a 30-hour intensive over the Labor Day weekend. Uh, This one is four days of intense practice with posture clinics, um, yoga philosophy training, and lots of meditation as well. This is a great option if you don't want to make the time or financial investment of a teacher training, but you really want to deepen your practice. And then the last thing I want to share with you is also in July, in between the two modules of the teacher training, I'm going to be in Chicago for the We Are Yoga Vacation. It's taking place at 105F, Chicago's original hot yoga studio. But they are going to be yoga classes of all different styles, different teachers teaching all the different classes, and we're going to take excursions too, so it'll be fun. We've got Pitchfork Music Festival going on, Chicago Cubs games, if that appeals to you. So here's the deal. I've got a special 10% discount for you, my Dharma Talk listeners, my followers, for any or all of these three events you can apply that 10% to your tuition for teacher training or the immersion or a 4-day pass at 105f for the Chicago vacation. So, to get that discount code and register for the events, head on over to henrywinds.com/events. What's your purpose? What's your vision? What mark will you leave on this planet long after you're gone? I'm Henry Winslow, and you're listening to Dharma Talk, the only podcast where I interview inspirational yogis on how they're changing the world in their own unique ways. Whether you're still searching for your purpose or already walking the path, I hope these stories get you excited to live your dharma. Hello, Dharma Talk community, and welcome back to yet another episode of Dharma Talk. This week, I've got a veteran teacher as my guest, David Dannon. David is a multifaceted yogi with 40 years of practice and over 20 years of teaching experience. In that time, he has founded a clothing line, earned a pilot's license, built motorcycles, and followed all sorts of other creative pursuits, perhaps all fueled by his deep questioning of authority and the status quo. After a cancer diagnosis in 2012, he embarked on a journey of research and experimentation into the world of traditional and alternative treatments of cancer, which has recently culminated in the release of his new book, Life, Yoga, and Cancer, Lessons from the Battlefield. David, thank you for joining me on the show today. How are you?
0: I'm good. It's my pleasure, Henry. Thank you.
1: Well, I always start these interviews uh, on this show with the same question, so today will be no different. What does the word dharma mean to you, and what is your dharma as you understand it today?
0: Uh, that's a good question. And uh, I think dharma is pretty much universally, well, nothing's universal, but is pretty much accepted by the yoga community as your your path your your destined path not just the path you're on but the path that the cumulative effects of your past karma and your current you know karma and also your uh, aspirations have created for you um, I think that like anything in life dharma can be pursued in two to, in a couple of different ways a lot of people Uh, It's you know mindfulness and intention is very popular concept these days and I, I talk about this in the book a little bit that When a lot of people mindfulness implies a kind of a focused mental approach a presence to what you're doing all the time And I think that's a legitimate thing. I have always been more improvisational I think it probably you know I'm a musician and I was a jazz musician not a classical musician and and so my approach to my to Dharma and just into life in general is to sort of open your eyes to the experience and also to the organic evolution of your path. And um, one's not right or wrong. I think that having an intention and following that intention and building on that intention is like a classical musician playing a very technically nice piece of music in a very beautiful way. I think that the improvisational path is more like the jazz or the rock, Solo, that can kind of go in any direction at any time, but it's just as legitimate. So, I, Dharma is absolutely being on the path that you uh, should be pursuing. How you get to that path or how you end up there can take a couple different turns. Um, I think that you'll know when you're on your right path if things are falling into place a little bit more easily. It's not too much of a struggle. I think that tends to be sort of an indicator of, of your path. If you're struggling really hard at what you're doing, you might want to look at that and say, is this really my dharma?
1: I like that analogy of the the musician's solo, the improvisation, because if you, if you tie it back to the traditional analogy, the path, it's like you can be on this path, but are you paving the path yourself or are you seeing the different uh, opportunities there and letting them guide you through the twists and turns? Like, how, how rigid does your thinking need to be? And, and I like your approach to that a lot. So, what, what would you say your dharma is at this point, given all the twists and turns and improvisations that have come your way? Uh, that's, a, that's a good one. You know, I mean, there was a time.
0: Uh, I started practicing yoga about 45 years ago and I was it was uh, I was a surf I always was a surfer I grew up at the beach and surfed and, and if you'd asked me what I was for a long time I was a yogi surfer period and um, And then as my you know, I went on and I experienced more things I became I worked in uh, film and television, you know, I worked in hair and makeup and film and television for 20 years so uh, people would say what do you what do you do what, what, and I never really considered myself to be that. but I do hair for film and television. You know, I, I, uh, I write now. I wrote a book. I write blog posts. So you ask me what I am now? Well, I'm I'm a writer. So yeah, definitely your path changes. I think the longer you live, too, you know, the more the more that that evolution happens because it takes. You know, in, in Indian tradition there's the different phases of life, you know, the child, the adolescent, the adult, and then the forest stage where you really get into your intersection and all that. And I think that your dharma has to be, you know, a, adjustable to those different phases of your life. And even within great gurus and teachers, uh, who that that is their dharma to to spread that word of whatever it is, the way they do it and where they are in their lives and how they go about it change depending on the position they're in and the time that they're in. So yeah, it's a, and it's funny you said, and I think guides are important too. You know, I think that's what teachers and gurus are. They're guides to help us on that path. uh, And not to push us one way or another. It's like, I tell my people in my yoga class, I say, I'm just, I'm just the guide. I'm taking you on this journey. If you want to stop and smell the roses here or there, or not look at this particular thing, that's, that's your, that's your choice. Um, But, uh, I think, you know, that's obviously the value of study and teaching is not to just jump in and drink the Kool-Aid with everything that you come across, but to say, okay, hey, yeah, no, how how would this fit into my into my situation, into my dharmas, and it's something that interests me. Mm-hmm.
1: So, I mean, you've had a lot of different uh, professions, little jobs, uh, careers, in some, <laughs> senses, some cases, probably just gigs. Yeah. But yoga practice has been something that's been very consistent for you throughout all those different phases of your life for 40 years now. So absolutely. I'd love to hear more from you about what your personal yoga practice looks like now and what it looked like way back when, how it's changed over time to sort of support you in those different stages.
0: Okay, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's The irony is, is that you have to remember, understand, this is this is almost inconceivable to anybody who's gotten into yoga in the last 10 years. But 40 over 40 years ago, when I started practicing, yoga, know, I didn't tell people I did yoga. It was like people thought you were weird. It was a freakish thing. It was very kind of an underground thing to do. Any interest in um, Eastern philosophy, even though the Beatles had at that point. Gone to India and done the Maharishi thing, you know that got a lot of mixed press. Like this is a kooky, weird cult thing, and all that sort of thing. So, I didn't really talk about it. And the irony is, is I was into mar- I got into martial arts. And my my mom, when I was a little kid, my mom got to yoga, which was very strange for a 50s housewife. And she didn't stay in it long. But it was long. My brother and our little friends would show up and just try. She had a book by Shiva and we would try and get into all the hardest postures and. Sometimes it worked out and sometimes it didn't, but, um, it planted the seeds, you know, it planted the seeds. I mean, we were seven, eight years old and we were doing headstand lotuses and bound lotuses because, you know, little kids, it's not only the flexibility you have as a kid, it's that you don't know how hard it's supposed to be so you you know what i'm saying right (laughs) and that's when you the same thing with these prodigy musician kids that you see that they they're shredding at 12 years old and then you never hear from them again because they just you know they didn't really they're not going to be the next Jimi Hendrix or jimmy page or whatever but they did they didn't they had that ability young because they didn't really understand that it was hard but anyway that said it planted the seed so when i was about 22 21 22 i started uh doing martial arts. And I did martial arts for 12 years. But at that point, I thought, wow, you know, I I, I could use more flexibility. And that yoga was pretty cool for that. So about that time, my brother comes across this book by Swami Vishnu Devananda, who happened to be a direct disciple of Shivananda, which kind of made the connection even more cool to me. And uh, that's how I started practicing. Uh, And so it was a Shivananda style. And um, then a few years later, my brother had moved to La Jolla. And you have to remember back then, there were no yoga studios. I think the junior college might have had a nighttime yoga class. It was really more like a restorative type of a thing. So my brother brother moves down to uh, San Diego, and he falls into the Yashtanga thing. And this was pre-David Swenson or Tim Miller. This was uh, Brad Ramsey and his buddy Gary had brought. And by the way, uh, from what I understand, the first American who studied with Patabi was Norman Allen. And there's a great... Uh, if you Google Norman Allen Ashtanga Yoga, there's a great interview with him talking talk about all that type of stuff. But anyway, Brad and Gary were San Diego guys, and they brought back this Ashtanga. And my brother started doing it. So I went down there, and I did some classes. And actually, was there when Pata- they brought uh, his students. They brought over Patavi and Manju for the first time. And uh, we were in this old church. I remember this. And this is kind of legendary, I guess, in the Ashtanga world. The old church in Lucadia. No no electricity. uh porta potty out in the front this guy had bought the building and he couldn't do anything with it uh, without going through the coastal planning commission so there were no pews in the church and that and I mean literally on talking doing uh first series of Shtanga yoga with uh, Patabi and Manju maybe 15 people in the room you know it was a, it was a much different thing and we didn't he didn't speak english you just followed along as best you could with somebody who knew the series up in the front and, mm-hmm.
1: yeah it, and was they,
0: whole, were, it was a whole it was a whole teacher different was practicing world. No, the teacher was doing adjustments. It was like okay. a mysore style class. That's what okay. that's what they did. Um, but there were people like Brad and his and his crew who knew the the series. There was no cheat sheet, no printout of anything. You're like that. you know, yes. I mean, it was very it was very hardcore and organic. I mean, it was not it was not like you you would say. The the thing that I found interesting is when I went to India five years ago, we practiced with a guy who was a, a uh, an Ashtangi, and he claimed, you know, he was a uh, student of Patabi, but he was indian and he his version was not the same as the version that the the westerners that i've always known have practiced so you know i think Patabi varied. he was more flexible in what he did because he came from that whole krishmacharya thing right and krishmacharya was very about individually individualizing practices and um so I thought I found that very interesting, and but ultimately I didn't really go hard. I'm, I don't consider myself an Ashtanga. My versions of my postures are are tend to be more Ashtanga, but I'm a vinyasa flow guy because I always thought that uh, you know the practice was just a little too brutal on the wrists and shoulders. I mean, because we were doing all the jump throughs through, and you know I think if you're young, if you're in your 20s, you know go for it, but you start getting older. That, it's it's a little bit rough it's a little bit stressful and um so and that's and that is how my practice has changed my practice was very athletic it was very you know go for it and um as you get older i, I the interesting analogy I love is when Marcellus talks about uh Louis Armstrong. and uh, in in music in general but especially in the jazz tradition the the, the ploy is for younger guys to imitate the older guy's stuff because that's how you kind of find your find your way, and then hopefully you get your own voice, and he always says that the young guys can all play the stuff that Louis Armstrong played when he was young and athletic, but none of them can play the stuff that he played when he was old, because you get to a point in your practice where you can't do it, you just can't you know, and and all of them are the same. I don't care if you're David Swenson or Tim Miller or any of those guys that you know they're amazing practitioners. You get to the point where your practice changes. You know, you get a little arthritis here, you get a little something there, an old injury comes back to visit you. But your practice, hopefully by that point has developed that that comfort and familiarity and that soul that you can, you know, it's just you see I, I see people like that. you know I, you came to my class one time and I get very I get very advanced practitioners. I got senior teachers. And there's just something you can see when they're doing a posture that's simple, a a Trikonasana or a Parsvakonasana or something, but you can just see that familiarity in them. It's just—it's really a cool thing to see, and that's—and that's what you know. All the young hotshots hopefully have to look forward to, you know, down the Mm
1: -hmm. road. Yeah. Well, the first thing, just to go back a little bit, that was interesting from what you said is that uh, the Patabi Joyce back then was individualizing the practice. I think that's really um, that might be surprising to a lot of the listeners. I know it was for me because one of the things you hear often about Ashtanga um, as a critique is that it's not made for the American body. Oh, we, you can't go through the series in this order and expect to progress. but you know he the way you tell it, he's actually already adjusted it for this Western different body type. I, th- I find that um, pretty, pretty cool to hear. Well, yeah, but you
0: also you got to remember is the way that Patabi taught it. I mean, is that and this is you know I never went to Mysore and studied with him, but you know people that I've talked to from the old days is you would learn you would go through the primary series until you had it going pretty good. It didn't need to be you know everything exactly perfect, but you know a few months of that and then you would incorporate the second series and so you would alternate. Right. And then after you had the second series kind of go and then you would all bring in maybe the third series. Because the thing is, is that the, each series of Ashtanga is not a particularly well balanced series. You know, it's like Ashtanga is basically it's a yoga sandwich. You got the, you know, the the first part and the end part and then the series is in the middle change. But um, y- you really kind of need to be doing all of those because there's, no, there's very little backbends, for instance, in the first series. And there's tons yeah. of backbends in the second series. So that's, you know, the combination of all that. And there are people nowadays who just throw stuff out there. Oh, well, let's do this third series pose. Let's do this pose. And then there are other people who just do the primary series over and over and over and over and over. So neither of those is really the way I think that it was probably being taught by Patavi in the day. Um, by the way, I don't refer to Patavi as Guruji because he—he's not my Guru. Paramahansa Yogananda is my Guru, and, and, uh-huh. and g- g- Guruji—a a more serious thing than a lot of people take nowadays. Like you hear about a stock market gurus or whatever. You know, that, that's just kind of a teacher or an expert. You know, a Guru yeah. is really more than a teacher or an expert. But anyway, there you go.
1: Yeah. Um. To your point about the uh, the primary series being no backbends until the very end, yes. I mean, that has been a struggle for me with the Ashtanga series personally in my practice. And, you know, I come from what really got me into my yoga practice was the Bikram lineage, which is super backbend right. heavy. Um, but when I first started practicing Ashtanga, yeah, that those last three wheels at the end of practice are brutal because you haven't even compressed the spine once. I mean, apart from the vinyasas, honestly.
0: But you have about the bendiest back of any man, for sure, that I've I've ever seen. But, you know, interesting point. My first teaching gig was Bikram. Oh, really? I don't know. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah. Yeah. Back in the day, you know, they didn't have teacher trainings and all that. And um, there was no Yoga Alliance. There was none of this stuff. And it's great. There's an old book. It's out of print now. It's called Yogi Bear, B-A-R-E. And I think it's from the early 2000s. And it, it talks, yeah, you know, it's Lilius Folan and Brian Kess and uh, I think Baron Baptiste might be in there. So all these people talk about how they became yoga teachers and none of them, there was no teacher training, you know. They studied, usually the studio owner was going on vacation and said, hey, can you cover classes for me or something like that. <laughs> so I was going to the, I went to this Bikram studio. It was one of the first ones. These, these This girl had graduated from the Bikram uh teacher training that was done at his house mm-hmm. in beverly hills with about 30 people and she opened the studio i think this was in like 1996 1997 around in there and i went to it to try it out because a, a friend of mine who was had tried it out uh, and she said oh yeah come try this out and you know they had the special two weeks for 20 bucks or whatever i don't know what it was so after about a week this uh, the woman that on the studio had been watching my like, practice and she said i need a teacher and you can do it and I said, well, I said, I don't know. I never, I'd i been doing yoga for 25 years, and I'd never even thought about teaching. Yeah. And um, so she said she, she made me a good deal. You know, I mean, it was a reasonable pay, and and, and that was how I started. And to truthfully, I think that having a – I didn't use the script. There is a Vikram script, script, as you probably know. You hear it. I always say that Vikram's like the McDonald's hamburger of of yoga. You can go anywhere. I don't know how it is now because it's all changed, right, because of the yeah. problems that Vikram had. But you 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 always and when I traveled a lot of times I even when I after I stopped doing that yoga I would still go because I knew what I was going to get I was I knew I wasn't going to get a a vinyasa teacher that I wasn't going to like the the sequence or whatever and uh, I think it was a good way to learn because uh, I didn't have to come up with sequences I just had to teach the series and get it done in the allotted time it was great for timing it took the pressure off of having to come up with a series. And uh, I think it got me comfortable in a room full of 20, 30, 40 people, which was awesome. So I, I have nothing but um, fond memories of of my introductory to teaching being yeah. B- b- yeah,
1: Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's a lot going on, um, controversy, uh, all, the, all the politics around his fleeing from sexual misconduct allegations, right. but say what you want about Bikram, the person, but that, that series, I mean, it, it really works. And part of it is just what you said. It's consistent. You can go anywhere you want, or at least you could for a period of time and know exactly what you're going to get. And, you know that consistency is the same thing. I think that pulls a lot of people into ashtanga, is that regimented practice, that routine that becomes part of your life, a very rooted yeah. part of your grounding, and that's powerful.
0: Did you ever do his? Did you ever do his advanced series? Yes, because yes, advanced I did series?
1: quite quite a lot. Actually, I really yeah, I mean, it's a whole it's a whole of my
0: my practice. It's a to, whole to doing that. different world. <laughs> It is. Yeah, it it's is. a whole different thing than his primary series but I want to talk to you too about that because you know my my class is 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 pretty repetitious I mean I have a blueprint kind of that I stay with and I and I'll bury it a bit in there you know I might be a little you know do a little bit extra back here or a little bit of extra you know form you know pinching my roster or arm balancing or something here and there but it has a basic uh, uh, blueprint and I you know some people criticize this repetition i don't agree with that at all and i'll tell you why because what happens is if i'm in a class i think too there's two things problem with teachers that are trying to come up with a creative new sequence every time and one of that is is that the sequence can end up getting really bad and i've i've teachers that i love and i'll take their classes and it'll still be fun but i'll end up in the posture and going how the heck did i get here Mm -hmm. you know um and but the thing what i like about sort of predictability is that you can get out of your intellectual side of your mind when you're in a class where you don't know where you're going you're always looking to the teacher you're all if you didn't hear something you're looking to see what people are getting into um, and you're never really totally lost in the present moment whereas when you're doing a series you can just get into your intuitive you know awareness get out of that intellectual process and experience the postures on an intuitive level, because ultimately, as you know, yoga is not an intellectual process. It's not a performance. It's a it is an intuitive, experiential road. And the more that you can keep yourself in that part of it, I think the deeper you can go in the posture. Like, I mean, you could do. I, I mean, and I can and I can say this with absolute certainty, after having done yoga for this many years, that there were things that I'm learned about postures. 35 40 years into my practice that I had never because I peeled away the layer of that triconazole or that parzoconazole or whatever so many times to get down to some some little nugget that I never occurred to me before and that's you know and that's what I try and teach I try and pass off that stuff that it took me that long to figure out to people who haven't been practicing for that long and even if they don't get it in the moment hopefully the seed has been planted, and it, and it will come to them when they're ready for it.
1: Yeah. It, these these classical postures, even in a, a classical sequence, it doesn't get old because there's always something new, something deeper in there if you can get inside. Yeah, I think that's exactly. so true. And it's that's why it never gets boring. You know, people always ask yeah. that about me when I was doing Bikram every day. Like, don't you get bored? Well, well, no, it's a different experience every single time.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah.
1: So I I loved hearing the story about how you first got into teaching. And I'm surprised, honestly, that you taught Bukram first. It's a kind of a funny <laughs> little fun fact about you, a trivia fact. Um, uh, yeah,
0: yeah, but yeah. now
1: I'd like to hear a moment in your teaching career, and it can be recent or it can be distant. It's up to you that you faced a challenge. You hit a wall with your teaching. And then what did you do to to get through it, whether that was an internal uh, conflict or something external?
0: Absolutely. Um, the, interestingly, the story of the, the Bikram studio was, it started out, I was teaching hot yoga, and this husband of the woman who owned it wanted to add vinyasa flow. Well, Bikram didn't like that. I mean, it ended up becoming a big mess with, with that. But I was the only one there that had... Well, there was one other girl that knew how to do... Uh, vinyasa style yoga but she wasn't willing to do it so that was how i got launched into doing um doing a vinyasa low class but i'm telling you literally at that time i would come in and i would say is there anybody here who has never seen a vinyasa or a sun salutation i'm this is a room say 30 people and literally like five people would raise their hand that was where i was starting with yeah. teaching vinyasa flow yoga. Nowadays, I mean, I look at the practices people I have have, and I go, I mean, this, this is what I imagined how, how it could be at one time, you know, and here it is. Um, but challenge-wise, I'm gonna tell you, uh, I have more of a challenge now with people's hypersensitivity to, and I don't know if it's an effect of all this, uh, of, of all the social justice causes, but I, I read something today people always admire your truthfulness until you tell them the truth about themselves and then they think you're uh not you know, i won't use the bad word right but yeah but hey, yeah you can you say know, whatever I mean, you want on it you got okay. the explicit rating um, but you know yeah the thing is is that you um for instance i said uh you know i i just kind of i don't i don't have a plan when i walk into the room i mean i'm sometimes i say things i don't even know where they come from you know um, and that's in the that's in the experience of the improvisational musician, you know you hopefully plug into another source and that source plays you and Sometimes so I came in and, and I was teaching in a room There was a lot of girl a lot of women in the room and only a couple guys right maybe 25 people and 28 people and two guys so I said wow, thank thank goodness for the for girls when it comes to yoga and there's a He says we aren't girls. We're women and then goes and complains to the front desk now that's the kind of stuff that gives me a challenge okay i you know that i don't really and, and and frankly it's kind of turned me off a little bit to teaching outside of my familiar classes that are very you know where i know people know me and i know them mm-hmm. um but as far as actually teaching yoga you know i think most teachers they struggle with trying to build with building a following and that's uh that's uh a, a, the thing is, is you can't. In the beginning, I think a lot of teachers try and emulate the, the the teacher that they admire the most. And I did that when I first started teaching at Yoga Works. You know, I went in there, I took all the classes from all the hot teachers that had the fullest rooms, and you know, I thought, okay. And then after a while, I was just. I said you know what? Screw this. I'm just going to be who I am. I'm for one thing I played rock and roll music way before any other anybody else played rock music. I mean back then it was kind of new age con- type of music a lot of people were playing, you know, in Indian classes. kind of music. Yeah, in the classes. Yeah. And I and I played rock and roll music and and a lot of the teachers weren't very nice to me when I started because you know, there's this they're no more enlightened, a lot of times in the yoga situations, they aren't really any more enlightened than anybody else, and you know, the petty stuff goes on and whatnot, but anyway, so I just, uh, I cranked up my rock and roll, I started teaching my classes, and I attracted the people who I was going to attract, and I got rid of anybody who wasn't going to like it, and that's what I tell teachers to do, you know, show up, be who you are, and you will attract the people that are right for your class. But you are never going to be everything to everybody. It's never going to happen. So don't even think about it. You're going to you're gonna make some people angry. You're going to make some people say he sucked or he was boring or that class wasn't familiar. You know, whatever. You just got to let that stuff roll off your back. And it's hard because yoga teachers are generally tend to be more, you know, uh, intuitive and more susceptible to energy and stuff like that and and you got to thicken your skin up you just got to it's hard thing to do but you you just got to do it
1: yeah yeah it's like an intuitive empathic bunch which sometimes means that you're a little bit sensitive to yeah to to the comments criticism the criticism (laughs) but i you're absolutely right i mean you have to choose who you or not even choose you just have to step into who you already are and see who that brings in because like you said if you try to appeal to everyone you end up diluting yourself your brand your message so much that it's just it falls flat to everyone
0: that's exactly right exactly right um, mm-hmm. and you know the thing is is that something in the beginning it's a, it was a, it, you have to remember a lot of the, these senior really these teachers that have been around for a long time you know, they didn't come into it from, oh, I'm going to go take a 200-hour TT and now I'm going to teach yoga. They already had an evolution built into them at the point when that opportunity to teach became available. So I think that the, somebody that comes out of a teacher training, it might it, it very well, unless they had been doing yoga for a very long time before they started that TT, um, it, it could take them some time to find that, find that you know path or that style or that that thing and i know i i'm there are people who probably think that i'm a i've had my style of teaching compared to a talk show host and um i don't consider that an insult because i have two goals as a teacher one is to give people a safe practice that they can you know have for a lifetime at practice, it's not going to give them that debilitating injury where you're going to need rotator cuff surgery or this, that, or the other. My other, the second primary goal for me is to either make the person fall in love or stay in love with yoga. And if I, the way I do that is by making it fun and uh, accessible and you know that's that that's part of it to me i mean we all have had teachers growing up in high school that science teacher was the best man he would tell us jokes about insects or whatever that chemistry teacher was the worst all oh, he just droned on and on and on i never heard anybody say i hated that class it was too entertaining
1: mm. so <laughs> yeah <you know. laughs> that's so, that's the that's my role <laughs> yeah yeah that's i think that's a good attitude to bring into it yeah because you know it kind of goes back to what you said earlier. Like you are not, you're not the guru. You're not, you're just the guide. You're giving people the opportunity to find their way themselves. And a talk show host does that, you know, it's just like, what can you allow people to see? Not what can you put in front of them?
0: Yeah. And, and also make it, make the experience something that they embrace, you know, not like, Oh, I dread like I, I need to go do my yoga practice you know, and you don't really want to do it, but you know. Hopefully, I can't wait to go and do my yoga practice. You know, um, not just on the physical level, but I'm going to see my people. I'm going to be a, I'm going to be in a room full of like-minded people. I mean, that alone. How often do you get to do that during your day? To be in a room with a bunch of people that are really on the same. You know, I mean, there might be a few Groupon people in there or whatever. They're just there for check it <laughs> out. But overall, you got a you got a lot of good company in a in a room of of yogis that are comparable to you in practice, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, David, can we can we talk a little bit about the cancer diagnosis and and how that kind of changed the game for you? What happened there and, you know, how did that change your teaching or your practice? Well,
0: it I have to say it it didn't change my teaching or my practice really it, it, it changed my uh, my spiritual path. I started meditating a long time ago. I'm, a, you know, I started. I read autobiography of a yogi when I was like 22 or three, and I, it just resonated with me. By, and by the way, it was really funny when I was my brother. I tell this story. I think on my website even, um, which my website is lifeyogaandcancer.com. My brother and I were little kids. We're sitting at the breakfast table, and my mom's serving up our scrambled eggs and. T- Oh, this yogi this yogi died and right here in pasadena and his body never decayed for 20 days and so i just you know we didn't really think about that we were just little kids and so later i when i read autobiography of a yogi it resonated with me right away and i got to the end of the book and there's this about how when yogananda mahasamadied his it was all told from the story of uh, from the point of view of a certified letter from harry t row of the forest lawn mortuary and this wasn't up in the himalayas this was here in, in burbank california how this had happened and I was just so stunned that after my mom had told us about that all those years before that I had just read this book by the same guy she was talking about so I signed up and that's when I started meditating and that's really what got me through you know all that it became I had a I had a slow growing cancer so I didn't feel the need to jump right in and and get all invasive things done to me you know and I didn't like the the prospect of the side effects that would could be permanent and all that. So I just did the same thing I do with yoga or anything else. I just said, I'm going to start studying this and learn everything I can about it. And I'll let it evolve down the path that it takes me down. And that's what I did. And, but ultimately as, as you may or may not know, Buddha's in Buddha's four normal truths are the life is suffering. The second one is the source of suffering is attachment, and it's the same thing. Buddha was born a Hindu. You have to understand that this is the same way that Jesus was born a Jew. So, Buddha's a lot of his fundamental ideas were based from in his you know being born a Hindu. But mm-hmm. so, uh, attachment is a is a very, it's, that's the, that's basically what you have to overcome. And that's what the Bhagavad Gita is about. I mean, Krishna says it over and over and over, non-attachment to the fruits of your actions. So, um, I really looked at that, you know, I, I was, I'm not young. I didn't get diagnosed with something terrible when I was 30, 35, that would be a different situation. But I, you know, I looked at that and said, I, you know, if this is it, if this is it, I'm cool with that. You know, I'm going to do what I can to to fight it just to provide hopefully information for other people because I've done it all man. I'm in Germany for three weeks. I've sat in the IVs or sat in the easy, the lazy boys with IVs in my arm. I've done so many different things Mm -hmm. and I just, I I can share this with people. That's, that's the, that's the reason. And, uh, that's why I wrote the book. It wasn't the book that I wanted to write. I would have loved to have written. I and I may still write other books as well, but it was the book that I kind of had to write. And so basically it was my, it was my spiritual practice that made that made that something that i could deal with and and not cling not feel so desperate about you know mm-hmm. and uh but the physical practice i you know i just it's interestingly enough and this is the kind of stuff I, I subscribe to a lot of health journals both traditional and allopathic i mean alternative and um australia has just recommended moderate to you know intense exercise for cancer people people that have cancer people that are going through even that are going through chemo or radiation because they and that that comes back to yoga I talk about it in my book. Yoga, to me, is the perfect exercise for anybody at any stage that they're in because it can be adjusted from totally restorative to outrageously stressful, you know, and, and demanding and anywhere in between. So it's a fantastic thing to do if you're dealing with a chronic health problem because you don't have to be the guy doing the full-on forearm scorpion in the front row. You can do whatever you need it to be for you on that day, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that that's a that's a huge thing that people need to remember. Yoga is here to serve you. You aren't here to serve yoga unless you're like one of these people that's carrying the torch for a particular style of yoga. You know, yoga is here to serve you. Let it be what it needs to be to you in this day and this moment, and it'll it'll be your friend. It'll like I said, I've done a lot, a lot of different physical things, and I. And my body's taken the toll. I've hit the ground hard a lot of times doing all the things that I've done. But yoga practice has always been with me. And even though it's a, a toned-down version of what it was when I was in my 40s, it's still it's there's nothing there's nothing less valuable in it now than there was then.
1: What was it like to um, you know put pen to paper or or finger to keyboard as the case may be for writing this book? Uh, did that bring up any any um, difficult trauma in you that you had to re reevaluate, reassess, re confront in the process of writing? Well,
0: I started writing it as a blog. Uh, a few, for my first couple of years into it, I never told anybody. I mean, there were probably only five people in the world that even knew that I had been diagnosed. And um, and then I came out, so to speak, on uh, Thanksgiving. What's it, twenty? I don't remember what year it was and I started this blog and um, it wasn't a blog where spill your you know I'm not I'm not one of those kind of new age uh, spill your guts get all sappy about so when I started blogging I I don't get into that it wasn't all about me 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 and and what I'm going through you know I'm not really one to spill my guts online to keep things objective and and useful I want the information to be useful and relevant And so that's what I did. And then when it came time to write the book, I used a lot of that material and I created a lot of original content. But by then I had kind of, you know, it was all sort of, everything that I wrote about at that point was pretty retrospective. After a while, I decided that the blog was too cumbersome to navigate the information and all that. So I started to write the book and I used a lot of content from the blog as well as a lot of original content. And um, that was how... uh, that was how it was done. So I'd already kind of been past all that stuff. It wasn't like I was encountering things as I wrote. Um, and that, so it wasn't, yeah, that wasn't really, that wasn't really an issue at all. But I want to make one thing clear. The book is not necessarily about cancer specifically. The premise of the book is that life is the arena or the battlefield. And just like the Bhagavad Gita, right? Guru takes place on a battlefield. Um, Yoga is the armory or the weapons that we have to make our time in the battle more effective and provide less suffering for us. I use cancer as a an example of a worthy opponent, but it could be any other chronic disease. It could be emotional problems. It could be you know PTSD or addiction or uh, depression or anything else. The premise of how you attack and use yoga against these opponents of life is the same regardless of what the opponent is. So the book is applicable to the technique of using a physical, mental, and spiritual approach to uh, fighting an opponent in life. is the same regardless of the opponent.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So who would you say this book is for? And and why, really, when it comes down to it, did you write it? Um, I wrote it. I think that the section on the section on life is just sort of
0: reflections from someone from a modern day yogi who has been forced to face his mortality because there is nothing that you will prepare you for having the doctor tell you you have cancer. There's just there. There's no other emotional experience you will have. It kind of similar to when you get told you lost when your parents has passed away or something like that. It's it's very it's not normal and then the section on yoga would be beneficial to anybody who does yoga or yoga teachers that aren't really because i this is the section on yoga is not how to do a scorpion or how to put your foot behind your head it's regarding the source of true of of the spiritual aspect of yoga and what how i mean there's a section on karma yoga that was so hard to write i mean even the gurus will tell you oh just behave yourself and everything will going to be okay you know that type of stuff um and so it's very informative to yoga practitioners or yoga teachers. I, I love the part on cancer because I feel that preemptive knowledge, like we you need to know hopefully what to do when something happens in life, whatever it may be. And unfortunately the statistics are very significant that you will experience cancer, and if you don't, somebody you know will for sure. And so the section on cancer just gives you Something to have an understanding of this horrific disease before you get told if you do. And I hope you don't, believe me, you and anybody else. But when you do, if you don't have the knowledge, if you don't understand the disease, you will be PTSD. You will be a deer in the headlights. You will just say, fix it, get it out of me. You will be completely incapable of rational thought. And they will be glad to ramrod you through the system at that point, the insurance, AMA, pharmaceutical, cash cow, and, and take care of it. So you, the knowledge, what I talk about, the knowledge on cancer would just benefit anyone if they ever end up that situation because then they'll have a much more rational understanding of what's going on and they can ask the right questions. That's the big thing. Let me – Read this so that you can ask the right questions when the time comes, whether it be traditional medicine or alternative medicine.
1: Well, thank you for doing the work of putting together this book, um, and I'm sure it must be, you know, a huge relief, and uh, you must get a, a big feeling of accomplishment for having completed it. So, what are, you, what are you doing with that with that feeling of accomplishment to to take the next steps forward? Well,
0: unfortunately, Henry, as you know, having a product, whether it be information or whatever, is just the beginning. Then you have to market that product, and and that's what I'm, and that's what I'm, and that's a, it's a drag because it's a whole other side of your brain, right? The side that creates your 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 practice or your presentation or your whatever is a different thing than the one that has to sit down and do the nuts and bolts marketing and. And that's, that's where it's focused right now. And by the way, just so people know, the book is available on Amazon. Uh, you can just Google Life or go on Amazon, type in Life, Yoga, and Cancer. It's available as an e-book or a uh, paperback book. And um, that's, you know, that's yeah. really all there is to it.
1: Yeah, we'll have the link to the the Amazon page for your book in the show notes of the podcast. So no worries there. Awesome. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you. David, apart from getting your message out on this podcast, what are you doing today to live your dharma?
0: (laughs) Well, I subbed subbed a teacher's yoga class this morning. (laughs) So I guess that was pretty right up that alley, right? Um, I don't, and it's funny because I don't, it's very difficult to sub, as you may know, to sub a class for a popular teacher. And I'm very, I've gotten, that was the first trauma that I experienced as a new yoga teacher, even though I was experienced and actually had more experience than the person I was subbing for. She was very popular had her groupies, right? Yes. And people literally walked out of the room in the first 10 or 15 minutes mm-hmm. that I was, and I hadn't even got, we were just doing the warm-ups at that point. And I just thought, wow, that was really, that was a tough pill for me to swallow. And so now I do, I'm very picky about who I sub for I have to know what their students are all about because why bring that, unless you're desperate for money, why bring that, you know, negative energy onto yourself? Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. yeah, so that's my Dharma for the day. I, I, uh, sub the yoga class and I, uh, I, you know, I'll probably, uh, work. I, Oh, I, po- I posted a blog. I also, I'm um, from my website, Life, Yoga and Cancer. I have a blog. So I posted one on that called Weed the Garden. You can check that one out. That's a pretty, pretty entertaining. About okay. Getting, uh, so getting, you're,
1: s- <laughs> You're still contributing new content onto the blog even after the, the book is complete, okay?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. I, took, I actually took the original blog down, turned the blog into a website with pages and, and posts as well, and then I, I, all the old posts are gone because Amazon doesn't like your content to be available anywhere else online when you're selling a book, and, uh, but I'm starting to put up new posts uh, regularly. I, I'm not super regular because I have to feel an inspiration or a subject has to come to me. Yeah, uh, you know, so yeah. sometimes I post one a week, sometimes I'll go for a while and, not. Uh, and you know, that's, that's just the, uh, the life of the creative writer, I guess.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll definitely link up to that in the show notes as well. Uh, David now seems as good a time as any to move on to, from the interview portion into the prana round. So in the prana uh-huh. round, I will ask you six rapid-fire questions and ask you to answer in minimum one word, maximum one sentence. All right, I'll,
0: I'll give it a go, man. <laughs> All right,
1: let's do it. Okay. Did you did you think this up yourself, Henry, or did you get this from somewhere else? Oh, you know, I listen to a lot of other podcasts. Some have have like a framework sort of similar to this, but yeah, I came up with the oh. questions. Okay. All <laughs> right, bro. Okay. In one word, why do you practice yoga? I have to. What's your favorite yoga pose and why? <clears throat> I
0: really love Ardha Chandrasana. Just a straight up Ardha Chandrasana. And well, why I can't answer that one question. <laughs> do you want yeah. the why? <laughs> okay, yeah, I like. I'll it. let I'd you wait. break the
1: rule to explain.
0: Okay. I love, the, I love that posture because it's symmetrically expanded. Uh, either that will make sense to you or it won't. There's no, everything is spread outward. And there's not a lot of yoga postures that that happens in.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, what's the single best cue or piece of advice you've ever received from a yoga teacher? Inhale, lengthen and
0: align, exhale expand and open
1: recommend one book to join our audience's shelves apart from yours uh, modern or ancient
0: autobiography of the yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda
1: is yoga for everyone
0: Hmm. I'll say yes
1: I like that you hesitated though You know, it's not an obvious yes. You have to think about that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Okay, last question. How can our audience get in touch with you and how can we support you in your dharma?
0: Oh, thank you, Henry. Uh, You can get in touch with me via my website, lifeyogaandcancer.com. You can follow me on Facebook, David Dannon. I'm the guy with pulling a bow and arrow in the profile picture, and you can follow me on Instagram, Danon underscore yoga. But remember the Danon only has one N in the middle. That can be tricky. If you do it spelled like the yogurt, you won't find me.
1: D-A-N-O-N, Dan. D-A-N,
0: right, exactly.
1: All right, David, thank you so much for coming on the show, talking about your book, and sharing your wealth of experience. It's been such a pleasure chatting with you.
0: Absolutely, Henry, and I hope uh, next time you come out here, you, you can come to class and we can chat.
1: If you got something out of this episode if you like dharma talk and want to keep it going please do me a huge favor and subscribe rate and review on itunes i know it's not the most convenient thing to do but it makes all the difference in getting the show out there and more visible to other people who can benefit from it and hey if you've got feedback or ideas or you want to get in touch with me you can do that on instagram at henry otherwise i'll talk to you next week and until then Keep living your Dharma.